The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 61. This is our third and final week in this chapter, Lord willing. On this journey of meeting Messiah in Isaiah's prophecies, I've really seen some things in this text that I hadn't seen before, and it's excited me. Um, If I start talking about them, though, we won't get to our study. <laughs> yeah, right. It's in three weeks. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that what the law could not do, weakened as it was by the flesh, you did by sending your own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemning sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And now we, standing in righteousness, are draped around your Son, and He wears us proudly. He delights in those He set out to redeem. For the joy set before Him a people an offspring that satisfied his soul. We stand in awe that we can enjoy the friendship of King Jesus. That you, O God, have invited us to your banqueting table. That you've called us children and granted us inheritance rights with new identities. We are now seated with you in the heavenly realms, never to be the same. Thank you that our identities are no longer wrapped up in sin, but in Christ. Encourage our hearts today as we ponder new creation being burst forth in our souls. Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for splendor. Encourage our hearts as we celebrate a restorative mission. As we celebrate everlasting joy because you have done something on our behalf. And as we consider the joy of the Messianic King who celebrates over us. For His glory and our satisfaction, I pray. Amen. All right. So on the sheet that you have is the English side of my homework in Bible Ark. And if you see red, that's just where I've altered the ESV a little bit. 
based on my wrestling with the Hebrew text. Trying to put this text together has not been easy for me. We'll see why in a little bit, but um, I recall a, a statement that Martin Luther made when he was working through the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, Solomon, something like this, Solomon, what you have said is very difficult for me to grasp, but I will overcome. And who knows if I'm right, but I at least this morning found some satisfaction in my interpretation that I hadn't had for the last three weeks, and God in his kindness delayed today's study till then. So um, we begin, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You see that this messianic king, this spirit-empowered ruler is talking to us. The Spirit's on me. To this end, for a mission to the poor, a mission of good news to the poor. And then you see at the end of the chapter, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because the mission has been accomplished. Notice what he says. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he's clothed me with garments of salvation. He's covered me with a robe of righteousness. And now I'm beautiful. Like a a bridegroom who decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels so now i'm i'm covered with radiance i've set out on a mission and then at the end i will rejoice because he's clothed me with these garments and then he says in verse 11 because as the earth springs forth it sprouts and as a garden causes what is causes what is sown in in it to sprout up, the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So something about this sprouting, this this garden imagery is related to the garments of salvation that the Messiah is now wearing. That righteousness and praise filling the nations sprouting up before them and and seeing transformation in them is now somehow being worn by this anointed one who's been anointed, we read in verse 1, to bring good news to the poor. So he's been anointed by God with a mission and then he declares, I think, I will... Rejoice because the mission is going to be accomplished. And that mission is related to nations encountering righteousness, nations encountering praise. So I was all excited because this text lined up with um, global focus and then the front of the text took too long so we could never get to the nations. But when he says... The gospel to the poor. Don't just think those in the covenant community. One of the elements that dominates the Old Testament view of ministry to the poor is that it's restricted within the covenant community. That's who 
the Old Covenant community was called to minister to, to care for, to have their eye out for. And yet, when Jesus comes, all of a sudden, the vision for the poor far transcends the covenant community. In fact, the goal is to identify new poor people who recognize their deep need of God's help and draw them into the covenant community, those who are outside bringing them in. Good news. To bind up brokenhearted people, to set at liberty those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to grant comfort to the mourning. Now all of this is the description of his mission. The summary, good news to the poor, description, all those five things that we looked at last week. Now we come in and identify results. The result of his mission is set up this way, as I'm understanding it. Number one, we get a new identity. New identity is this. Verse 4, or the very end of verse 3, they shall be called oaks of righteousness. The poor who get redeemed, and I hope all of you are among them, who've recognized your deep need and found hope and help in the mission of the Messiah. You become oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Not only do you have an identity, you gain a new activity. And it's summarized in verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. All of a sudden, if you become a tree planted in the garden of God, you become a worker of moving into that which was destroyed, that which was ruined under the curse of God, separated from God. You become a restorer, a builder. So we've got two different metaphors here. We've got the garden metaphor, new creation, garden of Eden, and you're planted right into the middle of it. And then you have a worker metaphor of building cities that have been once destroyed in God's earthly kingdom. So not only do you have an identity, you have an activity. And then verse 7 stresses, with the therefore, you gain a blessing. The activity gives rise to a blessing. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. So the poor, we will see, includes all the nations. Gathered in and now becoming a new people. Gentile and Jew together into one people of God. And now we learn that this group, planted where God plants them, will enjoy a double portion and everlasting joy. Everlasting joy. No more pain, no more tears, everlasting joy. In your presence is full joy for the longest amount of time. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures, how long? Forevermore. Full joy for the lasting amount of time. And for us who are tasting the weight of a cursed world, tasting the weight of darkness... Tension in marriage, struggle with kids, trying to overcome wearing out bodies in ourselves or in our loved ones, struggle with jobs, forest fires. 
Full joy is the promise of what will ultimately result from the mission. A successful mission. It will be joy for us, and then we read in verse 10, joy for the one who redeems us. So, a new identity, a new activity, and a new state. These are the results of the mission, and that's what we're going to look at today. So, a new identity, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Now, our book opened two years ago with, in chapter 1, with an image portraying Israel not simply as a sick person whose wounds were not bound, uh, bound up. We saw that two weeks ago, or last week. But also portrayed them as a garden that was supposed to be flourishing and yet had failed in any productivity. No fruitfulness, and so God declares judgment. Notice how he words it, though. You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. That's what he declared of his people. It's similar to his call for them in Exodus 19 to be a kingdom of priests. And then in Hosea 4 verse 6, he says, you're no longer my priest. I planted you in order to be flourishing and fruitful. That others might be able to benefit from the fruit that they see on your tree. And yet you haven't produced and therefore judgment is coming. And the judgment, we're told in Isaiah chapter 6, would be in the form of a fire. That's the image that's used of a fire devastating a garden over and over again until all that is left is a stump. And then it says the holy seed, which I think is an image of the Messiah, representing his people, who after his people have experienced judgment, he undergoes judgment. And then out of him comes a garden. That's Isaiah's image. Here, he calls it those who enjoy the blessing, oaks of righteousness. Here's how he talks about the Messiah restarting this garden. And though a tenth remain in it, that is, the community... It will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And then we see the seed giving rise. Here it is. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. David is the picture of kingship in the Old Testament whose very life identifies the hope of his ultimate offspring through whom the world would be blessed. A shoot will rise from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. I could add this text, Hosea 11, verse 10. In that day the Lord will extend His hand. In that day the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse, will stand as a banner for the peoples. Of Him shall the nations inquire, and His resting place will be glorious. So we have a shoot, we have a root, and then we have a tender young plant for he grew up before he grew up before him should say like a young plant like a root out of dry ground he had no former majesty that we should look at him no beauty that we should desire him he was despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief of whom men hide their faces 
He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace was upon this little twig. And out of the tribulation that went upon him, triumph would come. A garden would be born. Oaks of righteousness would be made. Good news. You who sit in darkness, a new light is shining, and with it, new sprouts are coming. Winter is over. Spring has come. Oaks of righteousness. By whom? The planting of the Lord. He's doing it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Enters into the darkness in order to to birth new life in our soul. And you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new is come. Morning has dawned. First day of the week. Sunday morning. New creation happens. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was on the third day that plants began to sprout in the first week of creation. And it's on the third day that new life is born out of a tomb. Paul compares in 1 Corinthians 15 the resurrection to the sprouting of seeds. It's a third day resurrection, just like in the original creation, so too in the new creation. And what happened on Sunday morning is still growing. And if you're in Him, in that that tree, as Paul pictures in Romans 11, grafted into an original Jewish branch stemming from Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, through Christ, a new tree being born, a new family tree, and you having new birth certificates. This one was born there in Jerusalem above. The garden people of God, for the Lord comforts Zion... He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. A new Jerusalem to which are gathered people from every tongue and tribe, language and nation. Not the Jerusalem on earth in the Middle East. No, the Jerusalem that is above. That is our mother, says Paul in Galatians 4.26. That's where our identity lies. The bride of Christ is Jerusalem that is above, and they have offspring, some of whom fill this room. Little seedlings. Like Eden, her desert, like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. That's why we sing. That's why we sang this morning. Fulfilling the visions of Isaiah, that the garden would be Expanding and born, giving praise to its planter. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire. In scorched places, He'll make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And then look at verse 11. As the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord. So the Lord will cause. He's the planter. So the Lord will cause righteousness and and praise to sprout up before all the nations. It's going to be birthed. That's the vision. That's the mission of the Messiah. 
And it should do something in our souls because it clarifies our identity. Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. He's dug our roots deep enough. I shared this story recently, but I'll share it now. I didn't share it in here. But it was in a ministry situation. Recalling years back when my family was going through adoption, many of you were walking with us, and we lost our first son, never to be able to bring him home. We were a week away from his becoming a Doroshi, and the doors shut on Chernet. And then we went, we were matched with Ezra, and we went over to Ethiopia, and he became ours, legally in Ethiopia. And yet the United States, a week before we were due to fly to bring him home, We got an email with three or four lines. Your son's case has gone into investigation. We do not know how long it is going to take. We will let you know when it is over. That was it. It's all our adoption agency knew, and it's all we knew. And a week went by, and two weeks went by, and a month went by, and two months went by, and three months went by. And he's legally our son in in Ethiopia, and yet not legally our son in the U.S. And... And there was a point at which I, as a dad, driving up 35W, coming home from work, pulled over, was just weeping, and pleading with God, saying, God, I don't, I don't know if my wife's faith and my three present children's faith is strong enough to keep going if we also lose Ezra. God takes those prayers. But even in the way that I prayed it, I was missing, missing promises like, I will make an everlasting covenant with you so that I will not turn from you. I will put the fear of me in your midst so that you will never turn from me. I was putting faith being awakened in a context of circumstance. Like, it was whether or not we would have our son come home that would determine whether or not my wife and children would believe, rather than recognizing that faith is a gift of God, and he's the object of faith who never changes. That he is worthy of our faith Not because of what he gives or what he takes away, but simply because of who he is. He plants it in our soul. That's the kind of rootedness he does with his people. He plants a garden, oaks of righteousness, that will indeed bear fruit and will indeed weather the storm. He is the one who does it. It's on him. So even in the prayer, God received the prayer, but it was a small prayer. It was as if I was making God so small, failing to recognize his absolute worthiness of my wife and children's faith. He's doing something, planting oaks, that when the winds and the storms come in this cursed world, He's able to water us from deep, deep, deep down. Because our roots go deep. 
And the hope is that one day soon he will let the waters of life flow on the surface again. That the ice will melt, spring flowers will rise, the warmth will come, and it will never be winter again. The text says... The ESV has it rendered this way. Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Literally, it's just one word. A compound word. Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for splendor. For beauty. That what he's doing among the oak is designed to display glory. In such a way that those who see it will have eyes. That a great gardener has been here. This is masterful production. This is otherworldly. What God is doing to make this kind of a tree that can withstand that kind of a storm and still display such beauty. For glory, for splendor. You shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. And her salvation as a burning torch. The nations will see your righteousness, O Jerusalem. All the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name. That the mouth of the Lord will give. A new identity gives rise to a new activity. And this is the section that I was struggling with literally for four weeks. And... We'll see how the interpretation goes. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. Who's the they? It's the oaks of righteousness. It's those poor who received the good news. Who've been bound up, no longer brokenhearted. Who've been set free, no longer in prison. Who are radiant, no longer mourning. They shall gain new job descriptions. It's right there on the paper, a builder of ancient ruins, a raiser up of former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now, it's really important for us, we've seen patterns in the Old Testament, like repetitions or anticipations. This morning in our sermon, the veil over... Moses' face was used as a, a picture of the veil that spiritually remains over the eyes of those who read the Old Testament and don't see how it points to Jesus. And yet there was glory back there, but the glory of the new covenant far exceeds it because there's no veil. And we can just see face to face. We actually encounter the living God when we see Jesus. So there, there was a pattern, a comparison, an analogy. Well, 
One of the analogies that we see is that God allows rebellious, hard-hearted Israel after exile to return to the land. And the language of restoration to the land anticipates and uses the exact same language of restoration and reconciliation with God. In the first setting, Israel's return to the land, which happened in 538, Cyrus decreed, as Isaiah promised, that they could go back to the land, that they could rebuild the temple, and restore the walls of Jerusalem. Here's what it says. I am the Lord who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. That's using the same language that we have in our text. Who says of Cyrus, he's the first agent in stage one of Israel's restoration, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. But what's important to recognize here is is that even though Isaiah is the preacher, and he's, he's the one guy, he's in space and time at this point in history, 150 years before Cyrus, yet predicts him, Not only his coming, but his name identifies his name. What we have to do is be able to read Isaiah through the lens that he's providing for history in how it plays out. And if Cyrus in 538 anticipates the servant who would come, Cyrus would restore to the land, whereas the servant would restore to to relationship with God. Remember, Haggai... Zechariah, Malachi, they're the prophets during the initial restoration, and they were ministering to a people whose hearts were still hard. There was no king, their hearts weren't changed, they hadn't been filled with the Spirit. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah even say we're still slaves, still in exile. And that's when God speaks to Daniel and says, You've been waiting for 70 years? I'm telling you it's 70 weeks of years. Add another 490 to that mix. And then the Messiah, the anointed one, will come. Daniel 9, 24 through 26. He will come. There's a contrast between the work of Cyrus and the work of the servant in Isaiah. They're agents of two stages, first and second, in God's plan of restoration. So if we're looking now at... The work of the servant, person, endowed by the Spirit, that the king has come, this is far after the days of Cyrus. That is, when God promises that on the other side of the Messiah's work, cities will be rebuilt, and there will be a a job description of restoration, we're not talking about the picture of building a physical city of Jerusalem. We're anticipating... Something greater that must be related to bringing reconciliation and blessing to all the nations of the world. That he's using the language of building to talk about the building and expanding of the heavenly Jerusalem rather than an earthly Jerusalem. 
Because we're just walking through his, his structure of salvation history. Cyrus comes first, then the servant. And if Isaiah 61 is talking about the servant, then the vision is that, yeah, Jerusalem's already been be built. It's already been built. The physical city, which the activity anticipated and foreshadowed the building of a new city. That Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, A city not made with hands. A city whose architect and builder is God. And that we're all a part of. The building of that city through the ultimate... How does Ephesians 2.20 say it? The church is built on the apostles and the prophets as the foundation with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. A temple is being structured. It's being shaped. And at the base is Jesus as the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets as the rest of the foundation. And now we become workers building up, in that text, a temple, in this text, cities. A kingdom of God is being established. That's what's being portrayed here. Enlarge the place of your tent. Remember we were in Saw this in Isaiah 54. Make your, your, the place where you're living bigger. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right, to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations. And will people desolate cities. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, O Zion. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. Broken lives will become whole. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is the work of the Messiah that he has instigated. Paul can say, I planted, Apollos watered, God caused the growth. He can use the image of the garden. Or he can use the image... I'm trying to think. I didn't... I know he uses the image of building. Anybody have the text in the mind? Ah! I should have thought of it. I didn't didn't come prepared with that. I was... um, We are workers. Anyway, I think it's there. I think it's there. Um, But I think that's what this is pointing to because it's the fruit of the Messiah's work to reestablish a community that will be about restoration, overcoming what has been cursed, what has been broken down. Now we come to the part of the text that is a little bit tricky. I'm just going to read it, and I want you to try to track the pronouns. Those are those little words that represent nouns. Second person or third person? He, she, it, or you? Okay. So the they here, I think so far, the they, they will be called oaks of righteousness. They shall build up the ancient ruins is talking about the community at large. We don't know their identity yet. Meaning, we don't know who, who's there. Is it just Jews? We might want to think so. 
But the end of the chapter identifies that all the nations have encountered this righteousness. All the nations have been moved to praise. So now, look at What I think, what I see happening in verse 5 is that the they, broad they, including the whole community of a new restored community, identified with the new Jerusalem, keeping in mind all the background that we've seen about Jesus' coming and the mission that he would spark, it's too light a thing that I would only restore Israel, I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. That type of vision. Brother Phil? 1 Corinthians 3, 9. For we are co-workers and God's stewards. You are God's children. Oh, that's great. We are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. God's field. You are God's building. What am I doing? I'm building you. That's, that's, that's Paul's idea. I am the worker shaping you. Thank you. That's great. That, I think that was the one I was looking for. It fit really well. Thank you. It, it works. That's right. So look at now. So you've got the they, which I think is broad, in verse 4, and then it seems as though that the servant, he's going to begin to distinguish a different they. A they that is specifically focused on Gentiles. In contrast to a you, which is his, the, the, the redeemed Jewish audience. And he's only going to camp here for just a few verses. And then he's going to return back to a broad they that I think includes both Gentile and Jew as one people of God. Notice how he words it. Strangers shall tend your flocks. Meaning those outside the camp will all of a sudden be inside the camp as shepherds. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. The your here is plural, not singular. So we're not talking about Jerusalem as a pictured as, a, as the bride. We're talking about a people that can be compared with a group of once strangers who are now shepherd servants. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. So, there's role definition here. There's going to be a group of Gentiles who are going to be providers. Specifically, Tending flocks, plowmen, vine dressers. They're going to be providers within the community. Gentiles. Not born as Jews, but now associated with the work that God is doing through His Messiah and the people that God is shaping. And then, those Gentiles will look at the you, which I think is the Jewish now we would call them Christians, Jewish Christians through whom God brought the word to the Gentiles, people like Peter, James, Paul, and at their head, the Jewish Jesus, will look at them and declare, 
You are priests of God. So we have providers and we have mediators. You're a mediator of God's presence. That's what the priest would do. And then you've got the Gentiles who are simply here tagged called, they're tagged called the providers. You're it. So as recipients of the Jewish Messiah, the foreigners will provide for the greater community. So we see texts like this. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. Do we have any of Jewish descent in here? Anyone? One? Two? And all the rest are foreigners who've joined themselves to the Lord. Notice how he talks here. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, the minister language, that's the same language. Look at in verse 6. The same exact verb, or noun rather, that's used of priestly service. Here, it's the foreigners who are treated like priests. They will minister to him to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, who holds fast the covenant. These foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, not only am I focused on Israel, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Or look at chapter 60, verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you, O Zion. Feminine singular. Your sons come from afar, your daughters carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian, Ephah, all those of Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, shall bring good news. The nations have received the good news, and now they're coming back to Zion, declaring the good news. What are they declaring? The praises of the Lord. And all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my house. The ingathering of the nations with sacrifices of praise makes God's house, Zion, beautiful. Uh, so this chapter 61 began with, with uh, the idea, the oaks of righteousness and the garments of praise. And the garments are often sort of the priestly garments. I mean, I think of garments in that term. And then I think of praise, and you're talking about the ministering of the Gentiles and so on. And that seems to me like the priestly role, the, the idea of... So, so the, the oaks and the garments are two... They both are really important metaphors. I don't think we're pulling that in so much, but I think that's what's there when you're talking about praise as well as righteousness. What are your thoughts? That's great. We're going to see all the more clearly when we get to chapter 66, the nations are included as, as priests. But here the focus, I think, is on the Jewish body. They're being recognized as 
as those who in radiant splendor display the glories of God. And this is not a proud Gentile community. This is a a celebrative Gentile community. And then look at the text. Look at how it's worded. Um, They shall speak of you as ministers of God, and you shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. This is a... a, um, responsive, back-and-forth, glorious community celebrating the participation of each. The Jews boasting in the presence of the Gentiles and the Gentiles celebrating the priestly role of the Jews. This is a community of, of Jew and Gentile underneath the supremacy of the Spirit-empowered King. And they're good with that. This is how it should be. A single, new, newly identified people of God who's been redeemed. And I've got all kinds of texts that uh, support this, but we're going to go further. Mutual respect. We've covered that. Honor and joy. Let's just look at let's, let's look at the end. Instead of your shame, a double portion. At the end of verse 7. In their land they shall possess a double portion. Now, if you just read that, therefore, in relation to what proceeds in verse 7, I think there will be confusion. But if, if the their land is directly associated with verse 4 and the ruins that have been built up, then it's at that point. Therefore, in their land, the there now doesn't refer to the strangers and the foreigners who are part of the community, but it refers to the strangers and the Jews, the Gentile and Jew. It's their land together with a joint mission of restoration. Their land in it, they, will, they together will possess a double portion. And they'll have everlasting joy. Why? Because the Lord, I the Lord, love justice. We've got to wrap this up, but I just want you to think about that. I love justice, and because I, have, I love justice, this new Jew and Gentile community will enjoy Everlasting joy. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and what? Just to forgive your sins. And to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Because of the righteous one, God would be unjust to forgive us, plant our roots deep, and let us flourish. But because the righteous one has come, and because God is just, he loves justice. And because he has worked it in Isaiah 53, therefore, therefore, The garden of God will flourish with Jews and Gentiles rejoicing in God 
freed from their pain, no longer mourning. I think that's the logic. I think that's why. Because I, I love justice, I will faithfully give them, Jew and Gentile alike, the recompense that is theirs. Ah, where do I want to go? Right here. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. That she is received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Why? Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him. His recompense before him. That arm is the Messiah. We've seen that over and over again. Who's worked justice and righteousness and with that come to bring the reward to the people. So that now we are counted as the offspring of God, the blessed of the Lord. So the Messiah sings, I will greatly rejoice. I'm clothed. We are part, I think, of his clothing. Garments of salvation. Robe of righteousness. He had it in himself, delivered because of his own uprightness from great tribulation. And now we, he wears us like a crown of glory and like a a coat of beauty. And he rejoices in us. I will rejoice when I see this happening. I will rejoice. So take comfort. Celebrate. Stand in awe. And take great hope in in this this messianic, servant, spirit-empowered king. Jesus, who has come into our darkness. Who started a garden. And now is letting us sprout, making us into people who will not, will not be blown by the storms of life, who will be oaks of righteousness, who will bear leaves in season, and who will experience everlasting joy. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.